Thank you all for coming out this evening. It's a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to be able to talk with you. Um, an opening theme for this evening is actually family time. First, I should ask, is Charlotte here? Um, Charlotte is, uh, Charlotte will, might be here soon. I was uh, dining with her and her parents in Pasadena just a week ago, and she's uh, just uh, started as an undergraduate here. Um, Tim Murphy, I believe, is here. And uh, Tim is the son of the person to whom this book is dedicated, Colin Murphy. So we do everything to try to build family bonds. And my own nephew, James Tierney, is also here, freshly arrived in graduate school. So I'm glad to have, have you all here. And even if you're not directly related to me by blood or occupation, I'm happy to, to see you as, as well. Um, in a group of this size, in a, session like, in a setting like the University of Chicago, probably the most valuable thing for all of us would be to have just an actual discussion. But I feel as if I'm not doing my part if I don't give you some presentation ahead of time. So I'm going to speak relatively briefly for 15 to 20 minutes on some connections between what I've been doing at The Atlantic over the last five years and why I've put it together in this book and how this relates to the news of the day and the news of this time in American, American politics. I have found to my, my interest in a couple of previous appearances I've made in the week since I've moved, I'm now living in Shanghai, China. I've been back in the US for about a week. And in some of the previous appearances, I found myself uncomfortably as the most right-wing person in the room because my, my stance has been not immediately to call for war crimes trials or immediately to call for impeachment. There is a problem with impeachment, as you know, if you look at the vice presidential structure in the United States. So what, what I will try to do is to just speak, speak to you in my position as reporter and journalist of what I think is interesting, important, and underappreciated in the news of recent times, and then I'll be happy to, uh, to have a discussion in whatever way you would like to lead it, or to take it. The starting off point for me will be the quote news unquote of the last two or three days that the CIA has discovered that the Iraq war is fomenting terrorism. This is interesting because over the last five, five years or so, you know, one of the big themes that has been, uh, I should say, should I, I will, I'll speak up so I can be heard better through, through the room. One of the big themes that anybody reporting this subject, anybody working on it, especially in the military and the intelligence agencies, has been exactly this, uh, let's see, are you waving because you can't hear? Okay, there's, in theory, there's a microphone here, but I will, I will use this one here. Good, good, I will use this one and then project throughout the room. The, again, you've all seen the news in the last two days about the leaked CIA or National Intelligence Estimate saying that they have determined that the war in Iraq has become the main recruiting ground for Islamic terrorists around the world. What's fascinating to me about that is one of many instances where things which in some abstract, set, abstract sense are not news become so in the way they're presented in the newspaper. This is, abstract, this is not news only because it's been so familiar and such ground truth to anybody working in this field for a long time, I thought I would actually read you something that I wrote in The Atlantic two and a half years ago about information that was old even then, just as a way of putting in context, um, context the recent news about the relationship between the Iraq war and America's overall position with the Islamic world. Uh, and this, will, this is about a page and a half from, from the magazine. It says, President Bush's first major speech after 9-11, so on September 20, 2001, was one of the better addresses given by a modern president. But it introduced a destructive concept that Bush has used more and more insistent, that Bush used more and more insistently through 2002. 
Why do they hate us? He asked about the terrorist. He assumed they hate what is best in the American culture. They hate, quote, they hate what we see right here in this chamber, a democratically elected government. They hate our freedoms, our freedom of religion, our freedom of speech, our freedom to vote and assemble and disagree with each other, unquote. And he boiled down this thought in subsequent comments, as he boiled down this thought, in subsequent comments it became, quote, they hate us for who we are, and, quote, they hate us because we are free. There may be people who have studied, fought against, or tried to infiltrate Al-Qaeda, and who agree with Bush's statement, but I have never met any of them. The soldiers, spies, academics, and diplomats I've interviewed over the years are unanimous in saying that, quote, they hate us for who we are is dangerous claptrap. Dangerous because it is so lazily self-justifying and self-deluding. The only thing we could possibly be doing, be doing wrong is being so excellent. Claptrap because it reflects so little knowledge of how Islamic extremism has evolved. Quote, there are very few people in the world who are going to kill themselves so we can't vote in the Iowa caucuses, unquote. Michael Scheuer, this was the former head of the uh, CIA's bin Laden unit, said to me, quote, but there's a lot of them who are willing to die because we're helping the Israelis in ways they don't like, or because we're helping Putin against the Chechens, or because we keep oil prices low so Muslims lose money, unquote. Jeffrey Record, a professor at the Air War College in Montgomery, Alabama, said, quote, clearly they do not like American society. They think it's far too libertine, democratic, Christian, but that's not the reason they attack us. If it were, they would have attacked a lot of other Western countries too. I don't notice them putting bombs in Norway. It's a combination of who we are and also our, our behavior. And it, I then go on to, to say that, um, uh, let's see, the, so, this is, again, in March 2003, just before the hostilities began in Iraq, um, President Hosni Mubarak of Egypt warned that if the United States continued the invasion, quote, instead of having one bin Laden, we will have 100 bin Ladens. Six months later, when the combat was over, Donald Rumsfeld wrote in a confidential memo, quote, we lack the metrics to know whether we are winning or losing the global war on terror. Are we capturing, killing, or deterring, or dissuading more terrorists every day than the madrasas and the radical clerics are recruiting? The cost-benefit ratio is against us. Again, this is Donald, Reagan, uh, Donald Rumsfeld in, 19, in 2003. Six months after that, also in 2003, as violence surged and occupied Iraq, the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London reported that Al-Qaeda had been galvanized and rejuvenated by the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. As of mid-2004, it had at least 18,000 operatives in 60 countries. Um, I've been saying for years, uh, I quote, I've been saying for years that Osama bin Laden could never have done it without us, unquote, a civilian advisor to the Pentagon told me in the summer of 2004. Um, quote, we have continued to play to his political advantage and to confirm in the eyes of his constituency the very claims he made about us. The point I was making, this was in an article about the year 2002, arguing that when we look back in history, we'll see that obviously the events of 9-11-2001 were a hinge point in American history, but the year 2002 may have been more important. At the beginning of that year, the United States was popular throughout the world, its budget was in surplus, its military was understressed and, and undertaxed, and it was trying to respond to uh, the attacks on 9-11, on mainly through uh, cleaning the, the Taliban out of, out of Afghanistan. At the end of that year, of course, the United States was committed to invasion in Iraq, was the subject of protests around the world, and had lots of the situations that uh, we, we, now, we now anticipate and know. My point in mentioning the CIA article 
and the article and the article the CIA report and the article I wrote two and a half years ago is to say that when people look back on the last three or four years of our history, as I think they will, this will be a very interesting and depressing test case for public decision making, not just I think at the executive level, but at the public level too, of how we've been able to absorb and not absorb information that's been relevant for, for our decision and somehow it has not, not made its way in. If people were saying from the, the early days of the Iraq war that this would be the consequence of having uh, a renewal of Islamic terrorism around the world, why did this information not penetrate public debate, political debate, and, and all, all, all the rest? With that um, belabored setup, actually let me now move, move quickly to, to three more structured things I, I mean, mean to tell you. First, I'm going to say something very briefly about the craft of journalism, since journalism has been one of the institutions that's been under stress and under criticism in the last five years for the way it's, it's, been, uh, it's behaved. Second, I'm going to touch briefly on the current hotspots of the world, Iraq, Iran, and the global war on terror, and give you my, uh, I have a bad solution for each one of these problems, and I just ask you to, to top it with something that's less bad, and I think you might find that harder than you think. And then finally, I'm going to list several of the longer term questions that I think young people in this room who will be involved in scholarship, involved in American politics, involved in public affairs, involved in world affairs for the long time will need to wrestle with as the upshot of the decisions that the country has made in the last four or five years. So that's my plan for just the next, uh, next 10 minutes that so we can have a, a discussion. The, the reason I wanted to put five articles and probably you know, 10,000 words of new material together in this book is I thought it says it was, it was a useful introduction to whatever kind of instant history we're going to be able to, to do of the decisions the country's been through in the, in the last five years, but also because it illustrated something about the craft of journalism. Those of you who are in the business may already know, and those of you who aren't probably don't fully appreciate how much what people in my business do is determined by lead times and deadlines. Now, everybody knows about the AP reporter who has to hammer out something right away. For my magazine, the problem is the, is the reverse. I'm working right now on a story that'll come out in February. And when you combine the, all the sort of editing and fact-checking process that goes into a magazine like The Atlantic, the newsstand delays, how long it takes to do the reporting, usually we have to think six to eight months ahead of time about what is going to be uh, relevant to people and what somehow the newspapers won't get around to covering in, in the meantime. Um, Cullen Murphy, my friend and the uh, father of, of a young man in this room to whom the book is dedicated, is one of the geniuses in the world in this kind of projective thinking. And Cullen, from the beginning of the post 9-11 um, emergencies for the United States, says that even though our magazine had a very, very long lead time, even though anybody else could do anything faster than we could, we would find some way to put our mark upon the world events of the, of the subsequent years by trying to outthink the, the coverage that other people might do. And so in March of 2002, Cullen had me begin work on what it would mean after the US occupied Iraq and what would be the troubles, you know, that we would assume the war was coming, we'd assume that the U.S. would win, and what would be the troubles then. So I was able to spend several months interviewing people who had run past occupations, you know, of Kosovo, of Panama, of Germany, of Japan, saying here are the, are the for, uh, predictable consequences, the troubles you're going to have if you invade a, 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 uh, an Arabic country. And we published that article in the fall of, of 2002, six months before the combat, and, and unfortunately, 
it proved to be accurate about almost everything the U.S. neglected to do, with one, ex one exception, which I'll get to uh, later on. My point about the craft of journalism here is that magazines like The Atlantic were pushed into a certain kind of reporting that we thought the major newspapers wouldn't get around to doing because they'd be distracted by the, the news of the, of, of the moment. The constraint, the failure that we live with at our magazine, and I think all the media lives with, is not simply the failure that has been much discussed and probably will be discussed in the next few minutes of why wasn't there more tough reporting before the war about WMD, why didn't the media stand up in various ways before the war to administration claims. That is an operational failure, and I'll go into it more with you if you'd like. The larger failure, which is difficult for those in the business, but all of us who are citizens too, is it's no longer clear that journalism has any hope of reaching people who aren't already ready to be reached by that, that various, uh, by the, the outlook of a particular, particular publication. When I was the age of the young people, when I was in college myself, it was the era of the Vietnam War, and there were institutions like Walter Cronkite and the CBS Evening News who, when he said things are going well or poorly, a lot of people listened and it had an effect. Now, as, as is well known, there are encampments of people, and it's very hard to know how a magazine that tries to be as dispassionate as ours can reach across barriers, how new news organizations can. So among the failures of the media, and we'll come to them later, I think there's also a, a danger that I hope young people here can help solve later on of is there going to be any grounds of authority and reason discourse anymore? Because it's a little depressing to, uh, to think that there may not be. There probably is half the American audience which when it sees about the CIA report says, well, of course, we knew that for the last three or four years. And the other half saying, no, of course, that's completely wrong. We know that Iraq caused the 9-11 invasions. We know we have to fight them there so we don't fight them here. And, and thus, thus our discourse uh, continues. Uh, th that, so that, that's my brief point about the craft of journalism. My survey of the trouble spots of the world and my, my precis of what to think about each of them proceeds this way. In Iraq, I think the most important both intellectual and political point to, as a groundwork for American debate, is simply there are not any good solutions or plans at all. Nobody is going to have a good plan that, that either works for the United States or reduces the carnage very much in Iraq because we've sort of gone past all the reasonable points. And therefore, uh, that point is worth making. Because the assumption in political debate, too, is if you criticize one course, then you must have some good plan to, to, to substitute it. And I think that this is a, a jujitsu that's being effectively applied against the Democrats. If they say the administration should be held accountable for five years of policy, the counterargument naturally is, well, what's your plan? And it's hard politically to make the argument there isn't any good plan. You know, it's like somebody smashing up the crockery and giving you the hammer and saying, okay, what is your plan? You know, there is not a good plan at that point. My bad plan is the following. I don't think the Democrats should say this, but I think that actually that the administration should do it if it had, its, uh, had it, its, its, um, the national interest at stake. My bad plan is the United States should organize itself to get out of Iraq as quickly as possible, but it should not say so. It should organize itself mainly by throwing all its efforts into shoring up the Iraqi forces so that you don't have 100 people a day killed by car bombs and all the rest. We can't decently leave when the immediate impact is going to be an even greater uh, uh, surge in, in, in uh, this, this uh, civilian carnage. So uh, 
here is the clearest way to understand the U.S. is not doing that now. The rotation schedules for the military are still essentially intact. If an advisor works with an Iraqi unit and develops some rapport, at the end of a year, the advisor is gone. And somebody new who doesn't know the people, doesn't speak the language, is there too. The United States should make an emergency effort to train the Iraqi troops, but not say that it's preparing to leave because then you start the clock running on, on, the, on the other side just waiting you out. So I can say more about my bad plan, but before you criticize it, you give me a less bad plan in a minute. On, on Iran, let me take you through, which I, I write about at some length in this book, let me take you through what I think is the relevant chain of logic, or chain of questions. I don't always imitate Donald Rumsfeld, but you know that he likes to ask rhetorical questions, so here are mine. First, does Iran want, the nuclear weapon, don't want a nuclear weapon? Of course they want a nuclear weapon. Anybody here, if you were on the governing council of Iran, would want a nuclear weapon. It's what great powers have, it's how the U.S. Uh, you know, the U.S. has not invaded North Korea because it has a nuclear weapon. Iran would like to be in that position. Next question, would this be bad if they do have it? Answer, yes. Each country that gets a nuclear weapon makes it more likely that others will. So it would be better if this didn't happen. Question three, can the U.S. or Israel prevent them by force from developing a nuclear weapon? I try to argue in this book that it's impossible. It's too late. There is not a way to, uh, to militarily prevent Iran from going down this course. Next question, is there any way to prevent them? I think the answer is possibly. And this is the so-called grand bargain being pushed by the Europeans, a combination of incentives and threats that would make it more worth Iran's while to pause than to continue. Final question, what if that doesn't work? What do we do? I think then the least bad of bad choices for us is to rely on deterrence, containment, and all the other tools we use with Pakistan, with China, and with India um, hating that prospect, but recognizing that, that, that there is not a realistic alternative to it. Again, you may have a better answer. If so, I, I await it. A final point on global war on terror, which is I, I have the last, uh, last month's cover story of The Atlantic was a, was a, a, a story called, whose headline was, We Win. And its essential argument was it was time to, to declare that the war against Al-Qaeda Central the Osama bin Laden organization that actually attacked us had gone well enough that they probably could not organize another huge attack. And if we ended the permanent state of war, we would be more effective in containing the other Islamic extremist groups which are likely to persist for, for the very long, long run. I actually have been, um, so the question I think, I think as an intellectual matter, it was impressive to me when reporting this article how little dissent there was about it among sort of the terrorism experts. The question is whether it's possible for America as a political community to have that complicated an idea, that we've won one battle, but we have a long time ongoing struggle. And I think there is a way if Americans behave a little bit more like Americans. Here's what I mean. When we think of national character, the old people in the room think of Humphrey Bogart or Gary Cooper or Jimmy Stewart, people who are calm under positions of stress. Slightly younger people may think of Gregory Peck and To Kill a Mockingbird, Clint Eastwood, whoever would be the, the, uh, the, current, the current symbol. That's how America has not been in, in recent years. And if we were American in that way, I think we could calmly recognize a long-term problem and yet not go nuts about it. Um, let me now just spend one minute on the last point I wanted to mention, which was the long-term questions that I hope young people here are going to um, spend some time wrestling with, or they'll have to spend some time wrestling with as a matter of public life. Number first is an intellectual question which has no real practical significance but actually is important. That question is, 
theoretically, could this have worked? And by this, I mean the vision of invading Iraq and converting it into a democracy and therefore transforming the Middle East. Um, my argument is that maybe you can imagine circumstances where all the planets are aligned correctly, where it might have worked, but that was so, so remote that as a responsible decision, you would have to assume it was impossible. But that's one question people will answer, argue about for a long time. A second question that people, I think, will be able to unravel when there's an equivalent of the movie The Fog of War, made with Paul Wolfowitz or Donald Rumsfeld or whatever, is about this tension and dilemma. How, if the salvation of Iraq and conversion of it to a democracy was so fundamental to the administration, how could they have been so sloppy about it? How could they have given it 10th priority? How could they have had political hacks doing the uh, administration in Iraq? Why do they pay no attention to actually making it work? I have some hypotheses about why they were as sloppy and cavalier as they were. I'll save those for, for later on. Another of the hard questions, which I mentioned before, it, it involves institutions which have failed. The press, as I mentioned, in certain ways is failing to give us actionable information. Our political representative system obviously has had some problems. There was more disagreement in America about invading Iraq than the political system reflected when the crucial decisions were made. If, if the press is the way we learn about things we don't see firsthand, and our political system is how our views are, are expressed, and both of those have had some failures, that is a, a challenge for us in, in the long run. The next of these hard questions, and the next to last, involves how this episode in our history is going to affect the military. Um, I'll explain to you later, if you want, why the military is effectively the peace party in the United States right now. The military is the main reason the United States is not likely to invade Iran, because the military is so resistant. The military is bearing a tremendous amount of the, is bearing essentially all of the stress of the United States during this era of, quote, war, unquote. How will the military look back on this era when it's, it's uh, about 1% of the U.S. population bearing 80 or 90% of, of the strain of being at war? Is that going to be a sustainable model in the long run? And how will junior officers look at their very senior officers, who they now feel are being compliant with political authority in the ways that, that uh, ha also happened during Vietnam? Uh, the names Tommy Frank and Richard Myers are two of the generals who are most often mentioned in this, this connection. The final hard question, and I'll stop, we can have our discussion, is how are we going to avoid another huge swing of the pendulum in foreign policy? Here is what I mean. American foreign policy is by definition more difficult than that of almost any other nation because it has to contain two contradictory impulses. This is an idealistic, invented nation which has to stand for something in the world or it isn't itself, but it also is a practical nation. It has to meet its budget. Uh, commitments that can't have too long a sustained foreign engagement. And so usually what's happened is we go from one bunker, one bank to the next. We have the idealism of Woodrow Wilson followed by the, the uh, real, hyper-realism of, uh, the, of the 1930s. After Vietnam, which was fundamentally, which began as an idealistic undertaking, we swung so far in the other direction that the United States was not able to its lasting shame to do something it should have done which is to intervene again in Cambodia against the Pol, Pol Pot. And, and, and this was because it was inconceivable that the US would send new troops to Southeast Asia. And th 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 at the time, there had been other genocides since then, of course. And so after an idealistic undertaking, which is turning to ashes, what will be the result? I don't know. I hope it's not an ex a swing to the other extreme again, because we do have lasting commitments. Uh, that is 
a three minutes longer introduction than I promised you, and uh, so I will, I will stop there. I'm going to get a glass of water, and now I hope you will tell me what you'd like to hear more of or different of, and I will be happy to engage you on that point. So that's my, that's my beginning. Now I turn it over to you. question is, this is from, from, a, from an officer who was in, in Iraq training troops, right? Former officer. Former, a former officer. Yeah, but, but you, were, you were in Iraq, and so, so, uh, uh, and so what will, will there be a different intellectual and political climate if there were a hawkish Democrat in the White House in 2008? And actually, the question were not if there were, but when there is a hawkish Democrat in the White House in, in, in 2008. One of the miracles of post-Vietnam politics is that despite the logic, the Democrats are both both perceive themselves as, and are perceived by many of, of the voters as, weak on defense. You know, that, that Bill Clinton can angrily say two days ago, look, I did all these things, and George Bush didn't do it, and still, you know that Republican politicians will run against Clinton being weak on defense, Kerry being weak on defense, and so there is a, it may be, it may take somebody like my good friend Jim Webb to speak for and represent the Democrats as he's trying to do in the Senate in Virginia right now, to have some kind of plausibility behind the Democrats saying, look, we actually can make more effective defense decisions. Even if, if it were the case that Hillary Clinton were, the, were our next president, which I don't expect, and I'll, I'll, I can tell you a word about that, I think that the dynamic would still be the case that any Democratic policy would be raw meat for, for uh, Republican critics. So I don't think she would do much better. And this, this then leads to the, the horrible question of, is it possible for the United States to have an effective military policy? Is it politically possible? Because you have Republicans who are secure enough and being seen as a party of strength, they don't have to actually do anything sensible with the military. And you have Democrats who, on the whole, have been paying more attention to the operating realities of military force, but get beat up for it. So that's, that is a, a puzzle. Uh, so that, that's, and I'll talk with you later about uh, predictions for 2008.